Well, good morning. I'm Aubrey. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you. I think it might be the coldest day of the year. I'm, I uh, wondered who was going to make it. All right. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to find our gospel passage for this morning, John chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, that's all right. Just find the table of contents, and it'll scan down through there. It's about two-thirds of the way. Well, further than that, maybe three-fourths of the way through the Bible. John chapter 1. I want us to start in the middle of our passage with verse 29. The next day, he, that's John, John the, Bab, the, the John who baptizes, different than the John who wrote this gospel. He's often called in the church John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now there's two things in this verse that I'd like to draw your attention to. First of all, there's an awkward concentration of the definite article. The word the. Definite article, the. There's an awkward concentration of it. I'm going to talk about that. And secondly, there's a command that it's good for us to pay attention to. So first, the awkward repetition of definite articles, at least in the original Greek. So many of you know this part of the Bible was originally written in Greek. And the quotation of John in this verse, this one sentence, John five times uses the definite article. Now, our English translations, they have to smooth this out because if you know anything about translation, there's always give and take. There's always things you have to do to move from one language to another. It's always a series of trade-offs. But listen to a rather rough literal translation and count the definite articles and pay attention to them. Behold, the Lamb... Of the God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. Striking. Each definite article, a number of those he didn't have to use. It's, in fact, it's, he's kind of bending the style of the day. And we do this in our language. We mess with syntax to make points. Each one of these, he's making, to use a pun, a definite point. Jesus is not just one among many lambs, given by one of many gods, as one of many possible liberators from only some of our deep sin for only a portion of the world. No. He is the lamb of the one God who is the liberator from the entire sin of the whole cosmos. That's a fairly audacious claim. As scandalous and insulting and provocative in John's day as such a claim is in our day. 
This is an immense statement. There is no wiggle room in this statement. There is, there is no nothing off bounds from this statement. It's so controversial to make a statement like this, isn't it? Sin is the problem. That's what this statement is saying. This is tough for us in our day because sin is no longer really a viable concept in our public discourse. But Christianity insists that sin as a concept and as a reality is fundamental and pervasive. What happened yesterday at the airport in Fort Lauderdale, in all its horror, part of the picture is sin. But it's not just sin out there. It's sin in our own lives. Our own dark thoughts and desires and actions are a part of what's wrong with this world. What about you? What about your selfishness, your anger, your greed? Christianity has a name for it. Sin. And sin is the fundamental problem of our world. We're stained by it. And this stain plays out in two ways. First of all, we're stained in the sense that we bear the guilt of sin. Our status before God and others and the world is that we are guilty. Guilt is the real status that we carry around with us. And we are plagued by that terrible status and the shameful experience of that guilt. It's not just a status, it's an experience. And a basic result is that we are exiled. We are fractured from intimacy with God, our Creator. And we are in absolute need of being delivered from our guilt, being cleansed from this stain so that we can be reconciled and brought into intimate communion with our Creator and made whole and integral in ourselves. And the second way sin is a stain is that in addition to our guilty status and our experience of guilt... The second way that it stains us is through the consequence of our sin. We are corrupted. We've been corrupted and broken and we spread this corruption like a contagious cold. Everything we touch. Sin has turned our power for good into a corrupting influence. Not only is sin present in the chambers of our heart, it is present in everything we touch in the structures of our world. Not only are our bodies broken and our relationships broken, but in our rebellion against the king and his kingdom, we have plunged the world into the darkness of sin. Cities are broken. Art is broken, business is broken, government is broken, nature is broken. The entire world groans under selfishness and justice and violence. The entire cosmos has become a place of darkness and gloom like Mordor spread over the entire earth. There is rebellion and wickedness and sorrow and pain. The entire created order, the whole cosmos needs to be healed. Sin is the problem for the entire human race and the entire cosmos. The sin of the world. All of it. 
Not just the fruit, but the root. That is to say, not just the effects of sin, but the cause. Not just the foul deeds, but the polluted source. All of it removed by Jesus. This is what it means for him to be the lamb of the world who takes away, who bears the sin of the world. Jesus is God's sin-bearing lamb. There's coming a day when every sad thing will come untrue. The scope of what John is saying here is breathtaking. And right here at the beginning of his gospel, we are told how things are going to end. We are told why Jesus is going to die. To take away the sin of the world. To cleanse the stain. To purify the fountain of our hearts. And the Christian gets to live in that heavenly atmosphere now. We get to walk in that knowledge that the stain is gone from us. That the guilt is not the last thing to say about us. That the shame we feel is a deceit. A Christian gets to live in that forgiveness and we can draw down on the power of that forgiveness and extend it to all who stain us, who sin against us, who reach out and harm us, Because we get that from God, we get to then give that to others. So that's the first thing about John chapter 1 verse 29. Listen to all those definite articles. The Lamb of the God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. Now the second issue I'd like us to notice in this verse of Scripture is the command. It's one word. Behold. Isn't that the appropriate response to such a one? You think your newborn child is worth beholding? Is your newborn going to take away the sin of the world? You think your beloved is lovely? Does she not pale? Isn't beholding the the response to this? Struck with awe? In the immediate context, John was telling a group of people who were standing around him to look up and see Jesus, that Jesus, the Lamb of God, he was physically actually walking down the road. There's a group around him, and he's talking to them, and he looks up and he says, hey, stop looking at me for just a moment. Look who's walking up. And they did. And that's what you would do. If right now I said, look, look out, look who's coming through the door. You would all turn and look and give your gaze. That's the immediate context, but there's more. The Bible, the Bible, it is God's word. It is God's word to us today. And when we approach the Bible, we must constantly think to ourselves, it is to me that God is speaking in this book. The words I read in this book are the God of the universe speaking to me. And just now, in this instance, 
He is saying to each and every one of us, He is speaking a living word, and He is telling us, Behold the Lamb. Look at Jesus. Behold Him. Gaze upon Him. Turn your attention to Him. Turn your sight and your imagination and your heart and your affections and your ears and your eyes and your whole being to Jesus. And man, is that difficult to do. How so very difficult it is for us to offer to God the hospitality of our beholding, our attention. I'm not talking about giving God the pitiful offering of an instant of our attention. That's not what behold means. It doesn't mean to glance over and it doesn't mean to walk past people on the street. I'm talking about truly attending. Beholding Jesus, this is about relinquishing our arrogance and inclining toward Him, offering to Him our whole being. That's the command. Behold the Lamb of God. The challenges we face in this are daunting. The enormous proliferation of data within our culture, a culture that's exchanged biological time with all of its limits and rhythms for a technological time which has lost all rhythmical flow. It's erased all boundaries. And this adds up to a ubiquitous din of words that numbs us. How do we behold in a culture like this where we've been numbed Uninterrupted speech deafens us. It becomes a hum of insignificance. This is the threat to beholding. It's not just that, it's also our busyness. We have scheduled and committed our lives right up to the limits. We're overloaded. A healthy pattern of life is when you have time to finish one project with excellence and then relax before picking up another. Is that your rhythm of life? But how we live now, we have no margin. So what do we do with our overscheduled, marginless lives? We speed up. You cannot behold on the run. We speed up, we read faster and think faster and talk faster and nod faster so the person will finish saying what they are saying so we can move on to the next part of the conversation. My deep prayer for you and for me and for my family is that in the weeks and months to come, we will figure out new ways to give ourselves a chance to behold the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. How can we do this? How can we truly, actually, really behold in such a culture? Our scripture passage gives us two pointers. One in verse 23 and one in verse 29. Let's start with verse 29. The verse we've been looking at. I'm going to start there because it's going to take a little more time to open up than than the second pointer. I'll start with the longer of the two. John chapter 1, verse 29. Listen to it again. And this time, pay attention to the first part of the verse. The next day, 
he, John the baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, to know why the first part of this verse is actually a pointer to how we can behold, we need to compare it. Look back a few verses. Look at verse 26. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. First three words of verse 29, the next day. Okay, so verses 19 through verses 28 occur on one day. And verses 29 through verse 34 occur on the the next day. The context of the first conversation, verses 19 to 28, it's when John is being investigated by the religious authorities from Jerusalem. They want to know who John is. The context of verse 29 to 34, the second second conversation, the next day, it's different. It's not a John-centered gathering. It's a Jesus-centered gathering. In the first conversation with the antagonistic skeptics, Jesus is there, but he's unrecognizable. They can't see him. In the second conversation, the next day, he's seen. He's recognized. This is remarkable. One day, can't see him. Next day, behold him. This this phenomenon, it comes up in John's gospel both at the beginning and at the very end. We find this exact same phrase, he is among them. The phrase from verse 26. We find it again at the very end of John's gospel, chapter 20, verse 19. We see Jesus standing among, same phrase in Greek, his followers. And then again in chapter 20, verse 26, we find again the same phrase. He's standing among his followers. So the question is, how can we see him? How can we actually, really behold Jesus? And one thing our passage of Scripture points us to is that it is in the church. It is when the followers of Christ are gathered that you can see Him. The church is the primary context for seeing Jesus, not your private quiet time. Not your family time. Not your own personal Christian walk. But it is the church gathered where we see him. The church is the bride God has created to see the groom. The church is the bride God has created by his voice to behold the groom. When the church gathers to worship, we look and we see Jesus coming toward us and we can behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why I love the way our church's architecture plays out with the band, the musicians shoved over there and we stand and semi-round and we sing praises and we adore the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That's why we do this every week. 
That's why Christians are so weird that this is not the weekend. This is not some day that we have at our indiscriminate disposal to attend to or not, whether our hobbies or vacation leave space for it. For Christians, there's only two days on the weekend, Friday and Saturday. We don't treat this like Saturday. Who else is doing this on such a brutally cold day? Why are we here? Why are we doing this? To adore the Lamb. That's why we're doing this. Because all that stuff, the Lamb of the God, the one who takes away the sin of the world, isn't, doesn't he deserve to be adored? What else should we do but adore him, behold him, get ourselves to stop everything else that we do and love him and look at him and, and all of our hobbies and all of our plans and all of our schedules, they bend around this moment because he's the lamb and sin is my primary problem and our world's problem. It's why we're here to behold Jesus, to adore him. The regular gathered, ordered worship of the church is the primary place where you can behold the Lamb. The church gathered for worship is the appointed place where Jesus promises to move toward us. When we come to this room, Sunday after Sunday, we come here for a multitude of reasons. But primarily... In order to eat and drink the Lamb, to meet Him, to hear from Him, to gaze upon Him. When the church gathers in worship, how does He come to us? He comes to us through the scriptures and the prayers and the songs and the drama of the liturgy and at the table. Over and over in the Gospels, Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And what will we hear the Spirit of God saying to us as we gather together on Sundays to worship? We will hear the Spirit of God saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Nothing else can really do justice to the price we pay. People come to church for a hundred reasons, but primarily among them, it is not to sing our favorite songs or to learn something nifty and inspiring or to reconnect with friends or to recharge. May we learn to come to worship from the first prayer through every song and all of it to adore the Lamb. It's the most important thing you will ever do. Now how in the world can we do this? How can we behold Him? First, attend to the primary place in which He moves toward us. The weekly, rather, Regular gathered worship of the church. Secondly, this one is in verse 23. John said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. John gives two commands. 
One in each day. One in each part of the conversation. On the one day, the command is make straight the paths, the way. On the second day, the command is to behold. So a second answer to our question, how can we truly, actually, really behold Jesus is this. We need to give him a straight shot at us when he moves toward us. We need to give him a straight shot. A real, clear, honest path to move on toward us. And how do we do that? How do we clear a path for the Lord Jesus to come to us so that we can really see him? We do it by confessing our sins to him and turning our lives toward him in trust. Have you done that? Have you ever done that? Have you ever built a road in your life for the solution? For the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Have you ever built a highway into your life for him? It's easy to name. How do you build that highway? Confession and trust. That's the highway. Have you done that? Have you ever confessed that you have a problem? That the problem of this world, you're complicit with it. That sin is the problem. Have you ever turned in trust toward the Lord and said that to Him? Have you ever looked on Him in trust and expected Him and relied on Him to save you, to cleanse you, to redeem you and reconcile you and put you back together? If you haven't, please do. Please do. Look, if you've never done this, find a time to get still and get quiet and confess to God that you need help and that He can help. And look toward Jesus and trust that He will. But it's not just a one-time thing. Building a road requires maintenance. Those of you who live in Harrisonburg all year long, it's like clockwork, right? Every year or two, the students leave, and the day they leave, they tear up Main Street. Because roads get used. And some of you built a highway for the Lord to come into your life when you were a child, when you were a teenager, and it is now full of potholes. You see, the way we build a road is the same way we maintain it. Confession and trust. It's not just a one-time thing. It's interesting, verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. It's interesting that the first encounter with the Lord pictured in, the go- in, in John's gospel is an re- encounter with the Lord who is en route to us. The highway for Jesus. Is the regular confession of our sins and a continual turning from those sins day by day, wanting to trust in the Lord. This is why we have daily devotions. It's not because our personal walk with God is the center of our spirituality. It's not. The church is. The church at worship is. But, it, but, but, 
but our relationship with God has to overflow the service. It has to overflow the boundaries of what we're doing here. It has to flow into our homes and flow into our own personal lives where we turn to God day by day and we learn from this service. I mean, how many of you have this prayer of confession memorized? God, I confess to you that I have sinned and thought, word, and deed by what I've done and by what I've left undone. I've not loved you with my whole heart. I've not loved my neighbor as myself. We pray it over and over and over on Sunday. Why? So that we can learn how to flow out of this service into our own lives so that day after day we confess. We patch up the potholes. And we again and again turn and trust that we'll be forgiven. That our guilt will be removed. And we turn and trust to rely on the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. We're facing many challenges to behold the Lamb. If we're going to really go beyond just giving God the pitiful offering of an instant of our attention, if we're really and truly going to behold Jesus, if we are really and truly going to relinquish our arrogance and incline toward him and offer him our whole being, we will have to push back against the enormous proliferation of data and the overly busy lives. And we will have to get a hold of our technological devices and put them in their place. And we will have to get a hold of our schedules to make time and space and margin for the most important work. Isn't that what Mary and Martha teach us? Some of you know the story. Jesus is at the home of his friends. Martha, she's busy. Is it Martha's busy? Is it? Anybody know? Somebody be confident and I'll just believe you. Martha's busy. Mary's just sitting there. Martha's doing all the dishes. Martha comes to Jesus and said, why? Why is she just sitting here? Doesn't she know there's work to be done? And what does Jesus say? But there's one thing that's most important. You know what Mary was doing? She was feasting on Jesus. She was beholding the Lamb. Is your life more like Martha or more like Mary? Deal with it. Fix it. Quit thinking that you're the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Quit thinking that this world depends on your production. Quit thinking that your family depends on your production. One thing is at the center of our lives. Beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Between now and the end of May, the sermons will be going through the Gospel of John. And my deep prayer for you, for me, for my family, for our church, is that over the weeks and the months, we will give our attention not just to the Gospel of John, but we will be drawn into the mystery of Jesus. And we will really and truly behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.